When I was about eight years old or so, I made the determination that I was done with my parents' rule and that I was going to run away from home. What I didn't know is that being the youngest of four children, my parents already had some experience with children making the claim that they wanted to run away from home. When I told my mother my plans, she looked at me plainly and said, fine, if you don't want to be a part of this house, you don't have to. I'll come help you pack your bags right now. I was uh, shook with that response. It wasn't ex what I expected to hear. And I immediately started in a crying panic attack, thinking I had given up my rights to be in the family. The truth is, I had been exposed. I was trying to show my strength and independence, and really I showed the selfish, ignorant, fragile little boy that I was. The first of three ways we fear people I want us to look at this morning is we fear that people will expose us for who we really are. Number one, if you're following on your outline, we fear that people will expose us. This is a common and fundamental way in which we fear other people. We will really only begin to scratch the surface of what it means to fear exposure. This struggle is most clearly traced back to the fall. Shame and separation from God were some of the immediate results of Adam and Eve's sin. With this shame and separation comes the fear of being exposed by God and by man. Left unchecked, this fear of being exposed can be a driving force in our life rather than the biblical force of the life lived by faith in the Son of God. In considering our fear of being exposed, I want us to specifically identify the why and how we fear people will expose us. So first, the why. The why there in your outline. We fear being exposed because of sin and shame related to sin. We fear being exposed because of sin and shame related to sin. Genesis 2.25 says, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And then just seven verses later, we hear, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So what happened? The fall, the single greatest event to afflict the human race. With the disobedience of Adam and Eve, sin entered into the world and with sin came shame for sin. Sin is described in the Bible as the breaking of God's law, 1 John 3, 4, and falling short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. This drives an infinite wedge between God and man. And that sin produces shame since it is a necessary consequence of sin because sin fundamentally is disgusting, morally reprehensible, and utterly unacceptable to God. And they, Adam and Eve, should have felt shame. They should have felt the need for covering. They should have felt exposed because what our first parents did was that bad. With the entrance of sin and the coexistence of shame, the temptation to hide and cover that shame arose as well. The temptation to cover, to hide, to retreat inward, to build paper walls of personal self-protection are now an everyday temptation because of our sin and corresponding shame. Ed Welch puts it well in When People Are Big and God Is Small. You're going to hear me reference this book a few times this morning. On page 33, every day is Halloween. Putting on our masks is a regular part of our morning ritual, just like brushing our teeth and eating breakfast. Underneath the masks are people who are terrified that there will be an unveiling. And indeed, the masks and other coverings will one day be removed. If we feel exposed by people, we will feel devastated by God. One way to avoid God's eyes is to live as if fear of other people is our deep, deepest problem. They are big, not God. The Bible is full of the plight of fearful, shameful humanity seeking self-covering to avoid exposure of sin 
while also recording the pursuit of a holy, gracious God seeking to save that sinful humanity through the cross of Christ. We'll reflect more later on this morning. So we've discussed why we fear exposure. Now let's take a look at how. How do we demonstrate our fear of being exposed? First, I think it's helpful to acknowledge that we try to avoid being exposed. Just like Adam and Eve, we spend a lot of time trying to hide from the gaze of God and from the gaze of other people. We build fences for a reason. There are socially accepted norms for what is appropriate to display or communicate in public, but oftentimes we move past the appropriate and wise to the controlling and sinful. We seek to make ourselves look better to other people, to hide from and cover what we really are. For example, think about the last job interview you had or resume that you put together. Were you honest? How about the last mistake you were made and found out by someone else? How did you react? Was it with humble ownership of fault or frantic denial of responsibility? These are important indicators for us as we discern whether we truly fear God or fear being exposed by man by escaping. Number one, there on your outline, under the how, we escape to idols rather than fleeing to God. How do we see the fear of people will expose us manifest in our lives? We escape to idols rather than fleeing to God. We seek to escape to, we seek to, escape to avoid exposure. In our attempt to avoid being known, we build for ourselves idols to hide and escape. These false gods offer a perceived safe haven for us as we attempt to flee from the true Jehovah and reality of who we are. We seek to find comfort in that thing or seek to lose ourselves in that thing in order to comfort what is a sin or weakness or vulnerability in our life. The problem with escapism is we become ashamed of the things we hide or take refuge in. What about you? I'll give you a few of mine. A good friend of mine gave my wife, Frances, and I this large tub of basically Trader Joe's branded Reese's Cups. My wife works from home, so being the good husband that I was, I decided to take them into work so she wouldn't be tempted by them during the day while she worked. What you have to understand about these Trader Joe's themed Reese's Cups is one, they're like this dark chocolate and just delicious, but two, they're already like half unwrapped, so you can pop open the top and eat one in about three seconds. I know that sounds great, but what I found out over a couple weeks is that every time something bad would happen at work, I was popping one of those cups. Rough meeting, Reese's cup. Boss is upset about something, I'm going to pop like two Reese's cups. I let the team down with my performance. Let me just go ahead and sit back, relax, grab my cup of coffee, and line up like four or five of these Reese's cups and go to town. That sounds humorous, but the truth is that sweet treat became a small idol I would escape to when times got tough. Our lives are full of these examples. The browsing of Twitter, Facebook, or my personal vice, LinkedIn, with no real self-control. Or how about making an idol of work? We know that really well here in the 305. Out to make a name for ourselves, only to waste a lifetime behind fading accomplishments. From image management, to drug abuse, to pornography and lust, to eating disorders and so on, we have no shortage of idols we run to rather than fleeing to God. The tragic irony is that each of these things that is used to escape exposure actually increases our fears and experiences of shame. But our seeking of these tools says something true about us. We have reason to feel shame, and it is right to want that shame removed. We simply look to inefficient things to cover us. As Jonathan Lehman once said, we seek to hold up and hide behind pebbles when Mount Everest is provided to us through Jesus Christ. 
Regardless of what they are, next time you are tempted to use one of these or another thing for escape, instead pray and confess your desire to escape something, your fear of something being exposed. Talk with another brother or sister about this. Number two, and how we see this manifest, we seek to expose others. If you're following along in your outline, number two, we seek to expose others. In our fear of exposure, we don't just cover and hide and escape ourselves. The tragic irony is that we often find pleasure in seeing others uncovered and exposed. My shame is diminished, at least in my own mind, when compared to that of someone else. How do you know if you struggle with this? Here's a quick diagnostic. What is your heart response when someone is confessing sin to you, or when you hear a brother or sister caught up in sin? Are you grieved, sorrowful, and moved to compassion, or are you self-righteous, perversely happy and indignant, or may you breathe a sigh of spiritual relief that you just aren't quite as bad as others? The latter two imply a heart that delight, delights in the exposure of others. Let us be fearful of knowing the public sins of others better than the private sins of our own hearts. The scriptures are very clear on the deceitfulness of unconfessed and unmortified sin. Where do we see this in scripture? Examples of shame and fear of exposure in scripture. Adam and Eve, we've discussed that already. In Genesis, we see the immediate consequence of sin and shame and exposure. We were not created for sin. Another example is in 2 Samuel 11 with David, Bathsheba, and Uriah. David and Bathsheba's sexual sin followed an intense fear of exposure, and David begins a dramatic and devastating covering act. He attempts to get Uriah to have sex with his wife in order to cover the fact that David had impregnated her. When that doesn't work, he orders Uriah to the front lines of battle in order to have him killed. Also throughout Proverbs, we see that those who seek wisdom rightly avoid the exposure and shame that accompanies folly. Particularly note the shame and grief that parents experience when their children are foolish. Proverbs 17.25 says, A foolish son brings grief on his father and bitterness to the one who bore him. There's a sense of shame and exposure that accompanies foolishness. And then perhaps the most tragic result of giving in to fear of exposure is provided to us uh, through Christ in Luke 9.26. He says, If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory. The second primary way we fear people, I want us to consider this morning, is big number two on your outline. We fear that people will reject us. We fear they will reject us. And when people are big and God is small, Ed Welch says, closely related to the fear that people will expose us is perhaps the most common reason we are controlled by other people. They can reject, ridicule, or despise us, rejection fear. They don't invite us to the party, they ignore us, they don't like us, they aren't pleased with us, they withhold acceptance, love, or significance we want from them. As a result, we feel worthless. As I was reading and preparing for this Saturday, I have to admit that this was one area that I was constantly convicted by. Even in casual conversations with people, I would often catch myself making a rapid calculation of what would make me look best, what response would the other person approve of the most, how I can look the most intelligent in their eyes, sound the coolest, et cetera, et cetera. As Christians, of all people, you would think that we would be able to easily turn from fearing the opinions of others, their rejection or lack of acceptance, and walk in the fear of the Lord, right? Well, it's not quite so easy. And why is this? So the why, number one there, people do reject us. People do reject us. Our experience tells us that there is something to fear or at least be careful about. People reject us because of things we do or say, 
because of the things of who we are, it's not always even outright rejection. It's sometimes not accepting us as much as we desire. Think about how you have been rejected or felt rejected or not improved in the last month, the last week, maybe yesterday or already this morning. So people do actually reject us. But point number two, we long for acceptance. We long for acceptance. Rejection hurts. Acceptance from all people at all time feels right. It doesn't feel good to receive a disapproving comment from a friend or the sense of not quite satisfying your parents' expectations for you. I'm not saying that Jesus calls us to be Stoics. There is a, pra- a place for right longing for acceptance. Say the desire to honor that is not greater than your love for others, a love for God, and a desire to obey him, or a good reputation as much as it is required for gospel ministry and proclamation, or even if you are married, a desire to please your spouse. But our purpose as Christians is not first and foremost about feeling right, but about being right with God, believing right, and finally living right. We fear rejection for who we are, personality, education, job title, socioeconomic position, gender, race, experiences, relationship. You change your personality because you think people will like you better. You seek after a certain degree or job title so that you can be accepted. You fear discrimination because of your race or gender. You fear being rejected by certain people because of other friends you have chosen. But how? How do we see this manifest? How do you fear people will reject you, and how do you manifest and deal with this fear? Fear of rejection is manifest by an overwhelming, overwhelming desire for approval. The greater the expectation and the desire for approval, the greater will be the fear and feeling of rejection as those expectations are increasingly not met. Whose approval are you currently seeking or can't imagine living without? I want, us to give, I want to give us three areas to consider. Number one, perfectionism. Perfectionism can often be a manifestation of the fear of rejection, a need to be the very best at everything you do. I must be involved in everything and be the best person involved in each of those venues. Or you overextend yourself to give yourself an excuse for being less than excellent. You say to yourself or others, I could have been better, but you know, we have to prioritize. This idea of perfectionism is uh, a frequent struggle for myself. I highly value hard work and dedication. But if I'm honest, this hard work is not always for the Lord. It is more likely so I can feel accomplished and good about myself more often so I can feel secure, content, and accepted. Many times I'm not acting as the eternally secure son of the Most High, but on, instead on a mission to secure what I can before the people and the world give up on me. Number two that I want us to consider, peer pressure. One of the most common experiences of the fear of rejection we face is the temptation to go along with the crowd, peer pressure. And that crowd really doesn't even have to be that large. Unfortunately, peer pressure just doesn't go away when we graduate from elementary school. We see this in what clothes we will or will not wear, how we will speak, or even what we will or will not laugh at. There are actions we are pressured to take merely because another person has become the definition of cool or acceptable or appropriate. And number three, there in your outline, more general, failure to live for Christ. Failure to live for Christ. We demonstrate this fear of rejection when we fail to share the gospel out of fear of how that person will respond. Ed Welch so aptly said, and I quote, sometimes we would prefer to die for Jesus than to live for him. However, 
If making a decision for Jesus means that we might spend years being unpopular, ignored, poor, or criticized, then there are masses of Christians who temporarily put their faith on the shelf. In other words, kill me, but don't keep me from being liked, appreciated, or respected. Aren't the most popular mission trips the ones that take us far from our own neighborhood? Russia is easy. Our own neighborhood is a constant challenge. When I was reading Ed Welch's book, I found this section particularly insightful. The truth is, life is a lot more about the small decisions we make every day than the seemingly massive ones that come up once in a blue moon. We are ready to make those massive decisions for Christ. It's a whole lot harder to make those daily ones that honor him. Another way we see this fear of man man manifest is how we confront sin. We either don't confront sin or we confront it in different ways depending on the person we are confronting. This is especially tempting for those of us that are seeking to be involved in the lives of others. In your discipleship relationships, are there some you would be more reticent to admonish, not because you think they needed to be treated more gently, but because you desire their approval or respect them in a different way? Or another, we demonstrate this fear of rejection in our passivity towards others, waiting for them to initiate love, reconciliation, leadership, decisions, and righteousness. This doesn't mean we ignore social cues and plow forward in our own way in the name of initiation, but it also fails to appropriately love and care for others. But are there ways in which you would refrain from doing what you know to be the right thing because of the fear of rejection? In seeking to make a distinction between appropriate desire to please others and fear of rejection, it is critical to be in transparent relationships with other Christians. Be honest about your thoughts and motives as best you can. So let's look at some examples in Scripture. First, we see just generally that the fear of man falls in the category of idolatry laid out by Paul in Romans 1.25. Men and women throughout scripture, and we today, turn other people into idols. This happens when we begin to think that people can give us something we need that God isn't giving to us. When we believe that they can protect us in ways that God cannot, maybe from loneliness, discontentment, or lack of control. When we add them to our worship portfolio. God is good up to a point, but we need to fear other people to hedge our investments. Worshiping anyone or anything in addition to God is just as wicked as a complete substitute. We worship other people because of sin and shame. We long for a more domesticated God, and other people easily fit in that bill. Some other examples we see in Scripture, Deuteronomy 1.17. It reads, Do not show partiality in judging. Hear both small and great alike. Do not be afraid of any man, for judgment belongs to God. That's Deuteronomy 1.17. Moses recognized the tendency for those in authority to treat people with partiality. Another example is 1 Samuel 15, 18. Saul's fear at David's ascendancy, he feared the rejection of people as they switched allegiances. And then in Galatians 2, Galatians 2, 11 through 12, reads, When Peter came to Antioch, he ex- I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. Here, we see Peter giving in to the fear of rejection, desiring the approval of a group of Judaizers, and in the process serving to confuse the gospel among his Gentile friends. And then lastly, the one that I want us to look at, Mark 15, 15. It reads, Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed over him handed him over to be crucified. 
In spite of acknowledging that Jesus had done no crime, Pilate preferred to appease the masses and so became the custodian of the greatest mistrial in history. He desired popularity, peace, and approval more than he feared God. Which leads me to our last point in thinking about how we are tempted by the fear of man and how we overcome this fear. On the back of your outline there, big number three, we fear that people will harm us. We fear that people will harm us. Consider Matthew 10, 28. It reads, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. I'll read that one more time. Matthew 10, 28. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus clearly tells us that we shouldn't fear the harm that others can inflict on us, yet we still fear. Why is that? It's because people actually can hurt us. Since Cain killed his brother Abel in Genesis 3, men and women have had reason to fear that their fellow man can inflict great harm to the point of death. We don't have to look to scripture to understand what the struggle and, uh, looks and feels like. In many ways, this type of fear of man can feel like the most legitimate form. And I want to be careful to say when I speak of fearing man, especially in the context of physical harm, I'm not dismissing an appropriate concern for safety and security. We serve a protecting God that desires uh, to provide ultimate security to his children. So when we do things that encourage this aspect of God's character, we are actually reflecting the fear of the Lord properly. This type of thoughtful concern for safety can be reflected in a number of ways. By not walking through certain neighborhoods alone after dark, in the work we do to provide security and safety for those in children's ministry at the church, in a way a husband and father would be concerned about his wife and children and seeking to do things that minimize opportunities for physical harm to come upon them. I'm certain that there are countless examples we could use to illustrate this appropriate concern for physical safety. And yet, Jesus commands us not to fear. How do we reconcile Jesus' command not to fear physical harm with understanding that feeling safe is generally a good thing? Let's look closely at what Jesus is saying here. He is recognizing that people can hurt us. They can go as far as killing us, which is the ultimate physical harm. In fact, he experienced this himself. But what he tells us is that we need to have a radical reorientation towards fear of harm from man. In one sense, a fear of harm from others is appropriate because when we want to be wise and avoid such harm to protect ourselves and others. So if that fear, that concern for physical safety, as I'm describing, is appropriate, what is Jesus saying? He's saying that our fear of God should be far above our fear of man. If they could be measured on a scale, an appropriate fear of man would be a pebble before the mountain that is the appropriate fear of God. Fear of the one who is able to determine our des eternal destiny, whether we live in everlasting judgment or everlasting life. This is the one who should be our utmost in our fears. This is the one whom we should place our trust this is the one who should control our lives. This is the one who we should serve. An important side note here is that this doesn't just have to be the fear of physical harm. This can include non-physical harm as well. It's simply not true that sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. A verbally abusive boss or spouse or parent will produce the same type of fear of man that the physical acts will also produce. It is not simply a fear of being rejected by that person or not being accepted by them. It is also not simply a fear of exposure, although there can certainly be threads of this running through these encounters as well. These encounters can leave us feeling as if we were physically being weighed down. The emotional and psychological burden can be crushing. 
Sexual harassment can also fall in this category. Whether you are receiving unwanted sexual advances from someone or have in the past and fear and mistrust others because of being fear, uh, fear of being harmed in this way. With any of these issues, I'm not in any way suggesting scripture says that we should stay in abusive situations. And certainly if you're in a situation like this, it'd be wise to speak to an elder or another brother or sister who you trust. As we consider proper responses to these situations, we may need to pray for strength to show love and gentleness to the person. In other cases, we may need to speak very direct and truthful words. Those who fear being harmed are often tempted to either be silent or angry in response. The gospel calls us to something else. So the why, I won't spend a lot of time here, as I think the reasons why this can be a particular struggle are evident. If you have been a victim of violence, abuse, or humiliation in the past, this fear can be of particular significance. But even those that can't immediately resonate with this, I think will find it plays a part in their lives as well. So if you haven't yet filled out your blank on the worksheet, what I'm looking for here is people actually can hurt us. People actually can hurt us. But how? What are some ways that our lives are shaped by this fear of man? How do we see this fear of man manifest in our lives? Number one, a cloud of shame. A cloud of shame. First, a cloud of shameful feelings may plague the person who has experienced physical harm in the past. We understand that we experience shame because of sin, but this sense of shame that accompanies being sinned against can feel a little bit more complicated. The person who has been sinned against may feel shame and a need to do penance or a need to identify a way in which their sin merited them being sinned against. It is necessary to repent of sins committed, but it is a vain pursuit to seek to do penance for being sinned against. There can be a perpetual sense of being a victim, a temptation to place blame for all future difficulties on those past experiences. Being a victim can become your identity. And then number two, lack of trusting others. Lack of trusting others. The person struggling with this fear of man is also likely to struggle with trusting others. If there is a regular fear of physical harm or past experiences of harm, it may be a temptation to view others through that experiential grid. The more we fear, the less we love, the more tempted we will be to withdraw and avoid others. And then number three, self-pity. Self-pity. Related to this experience is self-pity. Self-pity is another response to past experiences that seem to be causing fear today. Thoughts like, it would be so much easier for me to trust the Lord if only I hadn't experienced this. I can never change from fearing man in this way. It's just the way I am. I'm really a worse sinner than others, I guess. Self-pity can be an attractive response, and yet we must recognize that self-pity is simply another manifestation of pride. Just like self-confident pride that seems obvious, self-pity at its heart is self-focused and seeks trust in self instead of God. Where do we see this type of fear of man play out in Scripture? Well, as you'd guess, all throughout the Old and New Testaments. First, in Genesis 12, we see Abraham specifically feared physical harm or death at the hand of Pharaoh and so decided to lie about Sarah being his wife. He feared man. It wasn't that he had been abused or harmed in some way. He feared future potential harm and chose to lie and avoid. That's Genesis 12. Also in Numbers, we see the Israelites feared the report of the spies returning from scouting Canaan. We see 10 of the 12 spies that were sent into the promised land coming back and playing off people's fear of physical harm from others, leading them to choose not to trust in the Lord. And then Peter is an example both negatively and positively. He is a man whom we can look to and be confident that there is grace and forgiveness to the fearful. 
we see Peter denying Christ at his trial because he feared what may befall him if others found out he was a follower of Christ. You can see the immediate shame and regret that accompanied his fear, his fearing man above God. Yet, we see that the same man would later tell Christians not to fear physical harm. In 1 Peter 3, 13 through 15, he says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord. That's the same Peter that we see denying Christ. And then what about some positive examples? Joshua was, was one of only two of the 12 spies that sought to persuade the Israelites not to give in to the fear of physical harm. We see the Lord blesses his trust and courage to face up to that fear by later, later encouraging Joshua to be strong and courageous. Daniel and his friends, as recorded in the book of Daniel, chose to fear the Lord above the possibility of physical harm from people. And this was not some sort of hypothetical possibility of fear. It was real. Fiery furnaces and ferocious felines. David had many opportunities to give into the fear of man in relation to physical harm, yet we see him often responding with a deep fear of the Lord as he describes in Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? So what do we do with this fear of man? We've discussed three different ways. We fear that people will expose us. We fear that people will reject us. And we fear that people will harm us. In two weeks, we're going to discuss a new vision for life uh, with Pastor Eric leading that, how to move from fearing and needing to loving and serving and discuss a lot about what do we do with all this. But before we end our discussion this week and split into smaller groups to discuss this further, I think it's important we discuss three areas of consideration as we battle this fear of man. Number one, if you're following along in your outline, the gaze of God. What should we consider? Number one, the gaze of God. There is nothing we can hide from the Lord, the constant gaze of God. Psalm 139, one through four says, O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. How silly is it for us to hide from God? This is a good thing if you're a Christian. Your loving, all-good, all-powerful, sovereign, heavenly Father is always watching over you and working all things for your good. There's not a thing your heavenly Father doesn't know and doesn't care about. God is your Father, not a weary taskmaster, who has known you and loves you. If you haven't been born again, it is a terrible thing that God is all-seeing. God is not your Father. He is your judge. All those little things you consider small, such as white lies, sexual immorality or gossiping are sin in his eyes. Are you sure you and God have things worked out? God will call you to account for your sins and you will be rendered guilty and a recipient of punishment, his holy and just wrath. This is eternal separation from God. But number two, again, if you're following along your outline, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the great remedy for fighting the fear of man. In the gospel, we have the one who has been exposed, rejected, and harmed for us. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. That's Isaiah 53. This is good news, because before a holy, all-knowing God, we are totally revealed and exposed. But God, 
sent one, not full of sin and deceit, but full of truth and grace. His name is Jesus Christ, and why we, yet sinners. What I am proposing is not a boost to self-esteem, but to realize that before God, apart from Christ, we have reason to be ashamed of our sin. But the hope we have is in the penal substitutionary death of Christ. With the gospel, Jesus died for you with full knowledge of all your sins, past, present, and future. It is by his wounds we are healed. It is by his wounds that we can, even in the midst of rejection and harm, have hope. Now, if you live in the fear of being exposed, rejected, and harmed by men, repent of those sins and trust in the finished work of Christ. If you are struggling with the shame of past sins, have confidence that when Christ died, he died for that sin. What God intends to do, he will do. In this case, what God has intended to do, he has done. And then number three, the familial fellowship of the local church. The familial fellowship of the local church. Jesus should be believed, trusted, and followed in the local church. Living in Christian community helps us live this out. Accountability and transparency before others, as we build these open and transparent relationships with other Christians, we begin to lose our fear of man. Welch says, When we think of ourselves as alone and isolated, we will always be prone to fear other people. Isolation and the fear of man are close companions. Yet when we truly understand what God has called us to participate in a larger family, i.e. the church, we are free. Church begins to feel a little bit more like a family sitting with us in our living room. Better yet, we feel like a family sitting together at the feet of Jesus, sitting around the throne. With family, there is no self-consciousness, no embarrassment, no fear.